0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're sitting down with Republican State Senator Michael Lee to talk about two major pieces of legislation he helped pass during the North Carolina General Assembly's recent long session. The first is part of the state budget, which dramatically expanded opportunity scholarships That's a program that effectively allows parents to claw back taxes paid towards public education and spend that money on private schools. The second is the Parents' Bill of Rights. That includes a provision requiring schools to notify parents if their children change their pronouns. And another section, banning the teaching of gender and sexuality in kindergarten through fourth grade. These pieces of legislation were both controversial and we'll get into the criticisms that we've heard about them over the last year. And before we start, I wanna note that these are obviously not the only contentious things coming out of the Republican-controlled General Assembly over the last year. Many of you, no doubt, would also like to hear Lee discuss the abortion bill he helped negotiate, or the Leandro case, or state funding for teachers, or the controversial failure-free reading program. Lee has offered to come back on the show to tackle some of those, so stay tuned. He will also face both Democratic candidate David Hill and Libertarian candidate John Evans in the general election for state Senate District 7. So there will be plenty of time to ask him about his track record as we approach November. But for now, it's time to really dive into the changes in our state's education laws over the last year. All right, State Senator Michael Lee, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. So to start, I want to talk about, in general, what's been called the backpack funding model for education in North Carolina. And I was hoping to start with your sense of what is the philosophy behind this?
1: So I think it, um, I mean, I think you're talking about opportunity scholarships originally started uh, back in, I believe, 2013, um, really focused on, you know, primarily the, the very low income so that those who were, um in particular school districts, um, would have opportunities to go to schools that were not necessarily related by their zip code. And it started at a relatively low amount. And and over time has increased both both in eligibility and amount. Fast forward from 2013 to today without kind of going into the expansion over the years. Right now, you've got essentially four levels. You've got, if your income is 100% or less of free and reduced lunch, you get what is the equivalent of the statewide ADM, average daily membership. That's how much we fund as a state to students. On top of that is local funding and federal funding, but this really just is based on state funding. The next level is 100% to 200% of free and reduced lunch. The next level is 200% to 450%. And then the next level is 450% and over. And as as the eligibility expands, the amount of the award goes down. So, for example, for the highest award for 100% or loss of free reduced lunch is $7,200 based on ADM. Then it goes to $6,400. And then it goes down to $4,300 and $3,200 for, for the um, highest economic level.
0: So the most recent legislation has, as I understand it, removed all family income caps to participate in this program.
1: It, it does, and that's kind of how it scales up. So anything 450% or greater over the free and release lunch will, we'll, based on the ADM numbers now, it looks like it's about $3,200.
0: So I know you have an answer for this, but I have to ask, you know, for families that are significantly affluent, you know, millionaires, do they need that money?
1: You know, I... I've heard this a lot, and it's it's a really political hot button. They said, well, why do we pay for wealthy kids to go to school? Well, right now, we're paying about $12,000 a year for those same kids to go to traditional public school. And so this is scaled for those who need it the most first. So it's a waterfall. Those who are the 100%, 200%, 240 50% are going to get the award first. And if it's left over, it can go to these other students. What ends up happening is if you have a student um, for one of those students or any other student, if, if that student leaves the public school system now to go to private school, it's a net deduction of whatever the average ADM, $7,200 plus state and federal gets up to, I think, $12,000 in the most recent estimates. And so the school loses that money. In this particular instance, if that same student at the highest bracket were to go, they would get a $3,200 scholarship and then the delta, the difference between what was being paid and what the scholarship amount is, is going into a traditional or going into a public school reinvestment fund. And we're working on that right now.
0: So a related question. There's something about the way that the current funding model for public school works that um, I've, I've had a little trouble wrapping my head around. And so here's the scenario that I'm trying to understand. Imagine a school room where you've got 20 students and each student is getting combined state, federal and local funding somewhere in the ten, eleven dollars $11,000 range. And it's going to depend on the county. If, say, four of those students were to leave to go to... A private school for whatever reason, the school is now going to lose $40,000 somewhere in that range. But they are still probably going to have roughly the same overhead costs. They're still going to need a teacher. They're still going to need a janitor, an HVAC system, all that stuff. Is there a mechanism that helps account for that? You know, if you lost a whole complete classroom, maybe you could reasonably scale down by that much. But like when you lose a, a chunk, how does that funding equation work out?
1: Um, so it's there are different points in which that funding is made, um, but the same exact thing happens if students from New Hanover County go to Duplin County. That same loss is there. Um, so it, it's really up to the school systems to really be able to account for those types of numbers. You're talking about the the state of North Carolina is I think number twelve right now in the nation of how much we fund per pupil funding. You hear we're at like thirty eight or thirty nine from everyone. Um, but that's the combined funding um, between state and local. Um, but on the state level, I think we're number 12 right now in how much we we provide. You know, a lot of those adjustments are going to have to be made by by local school districts. There are times where there are a, a massive uh, exodus of students and the state will come in and help with things like that. For example, in Camden, um, when the plant shut down, you know, a large number of kids moved, not to private schools, but just to other counties, some of them adjacent counties, um, because there was no longer employment in that county. And so the state comes in and helps with that. There are a variety of different ways and mechanisms in which the state can can help in that regard.
0: Is that something that this reinvestment fund could could do, for example.
1: It is. You know, um, Like I said, you, and this is for, for every student, not just you know, at the 3,200 level, but at the other levels as well. Any student that comes out, that will establish this reinvestment fund, and then we'll utilize that reinvestment fund to make sure um, that we're able to provide uh, for traditional public schools as well. And you know, that was kind of the point of it, um, to make sure that, that we have this extra funding to the extent we need it. But again, the state ends up um, having more resources to invest um, when students move from the student you were talking about, uh, when that particular student moves from a, a public school to a private school, home school, something like that, or an opportunity scholarship, excuse
0: me. The other question I've heard about the opportunity scholarship program is, I, I take it that the argument is that the family has paid this money in taxes and that it should follow their student. But if it follows their student to a private school that is public money going to a private school, there is not currently a level of accountability for those private schools that we would see in a public school or to a lesser extent, a charter school. Is that something you guys have tried to wrap your heads around?
1: I mean, there is some accountability already. They've got to report to DOA. They've got to provide aggregate. They've got to give nationally normed tests and report those aggregated data of nationally normed tests to SEAA. Um, they have to provide a written report to parents on, on how their child is doing. So, I mean, there are a variety of different things that are there uh, in place already, especially with the nationally normed tests. But one of the things we are working on is, is because we need to know how all of our students are doing in North Carolina. We are looking at um, a nationally normed test, 3rd, 8th, and 11th grade that is taken across all schools, traditional, charter, um, any, any school that's receiving um, state funds. The the reason we couldn't go ahead and do that right away is because uh, federal law requires us to do certain things um, in, in the third grade and eighth grade with regard to, um, and of course, testing on based on the standard course of study. And so we have in the last budget cycle, last DPI, take a look at that, let us know how we comply with federal law, and also have this nationally normed test across all schools that receive um, public funding.
0: So this is a question I've actually heard from People who work in private schools, religious schools, a yeshiva, or a Catholic school, um, does the does receiving public money through this scholarship program open up a private, say, religious school, to liability for something like discrimination?
1: Um, you know, right now schools can't discriminate based on 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 race, color, national origin. I mean, that's essentially how it works right now. Um, I mean, that's. We follow kind of the federal law when it comes to that perspective. It's, I think a religious school um, you know, that has – you know, within a church or, or something like that, I think that they are going to be within their rights to, to make sure that they're teaching in a way that, that their families are, are interested in.
0: But I mean traditionally they're insulated from that kind of liability because they are private religious institutions. But if they're taking public money, a dress code that is clearly gendered or an educational – uh, curriculum that includes stuff that you know could be say offensive to women or members of the queer community
1: yeah i think it's all i think it's student-centered you know a lot of folks talk about money going to schools and and a you know i, I use the term backpack funding because i think that the funding really is student-centered and it's not just in the context of opportunity scholarships again if one student is moving from to hanover county to wake county um, New Hanover County should not receive the penalty. There should be some way to to prorate the funding as Wake County picks up a New Hanover County student or vice versa. We're going from New Hanover County uh, traditional public schools to a charter school. And so, you know, I view, and I think most people that look at this view this as student centered, not sending money to institutions like we do right now, but following students.
0: I take your point, but we are giving public money to a private school that without public money would be allowed to have rules, regulations, curriculum that would violate um, the law in a public school. So that's, that's what I'm asking is that, for example, when PPP funding went to Cape Fear Academy, which is a private school here in New Hanover County, excellent school from everything I hear, they suddenly became um, liable for Title IX violations. They would not have been liable for Um, Were they a private school with no public funding? Now, obviously, that's the federal level, but I'm asking, is there an analog at the state level where North Carolina Department of Public Instruction money is going to, say, a Catholic school or a yeshiva or something like that that is teaching something that could be viewed as objectionable? Are they now... Um, should their attorneys now be concerned about liability?
1: Well, I'm not their lawyer, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm not trying to but, trick you into yeah, you know, giving legal advice without... Yeah, I'm not their lawyer, so I don't know. But again, I, I think that, that we view this as, as funding uh, following students and funding the student's education to provide a sound basic education and giving parents the ability to determine uh, what that means with certain you know, metrics, as I mentioned. We need to be looking. Uh, we already require that nationally normed tests are given. So th- there are certain metrics that, that we need as a state to know but at the end of the day, I think it's really going to be up to the parents to the extent that schools are doing things that they're not supposed to under federal law or any other law. I mean, that, that's something that um, they're going to have to determine uh, as they move forward.
0: So it would be less about compliance with law and more about buyer beware, essentially.
1: Well, no, I think I think that everyone needs to comply with the law. Okay. <laughs> so everyone needs to comply with the law. And so if, if that law d- applies, they need to follow it. But right now, I think that the way that we view it as funding is following students and those parents are have the ability to make a decision where their children go.
0: All right. Well, we need to take a quick break. You've been listening to State Senator Michael Lee discussing education funding, specifically the Opportunity Scholarship. And I know that some of these facts and figures are controversial. There's a lot of different ways to look at funding for education. So we did some fact checking and you can find some data on how North Carolina stacks up against other states when it comes to education funding, on our show page and when we come back in just a moment we'll be talking about the parents bill of rights i'm ben shockman you're listening to the newsroom stay with us (music) welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for staying with us. We return now to our conversation with Republican State Senator Michael Lee. If it's all right with you, I want to move on to the Parents' Bill of Rights because I know there's a lot to unpack here. And people can't see this, but you have a stack of homework. I you. did
1: not get a chance to study for the test today, um, so I did bring some uh, information, and in particular, the bill.
0: <laughs> I, I have my own copy, so yeah, let's, uh, let's get into this. Sure. So we've seen similar legislation like this um, around the country, so this is not an anomaly. But I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about where the impetus for this legislation in North Carolina came from.
1: So, I mean, this is not the – I mean, I know people say it's the same or similar. Um, I think it's very different in a lot of particular ways. You know, right now this is the Parents' Bill of Rights. A lot of folks have just focused on on three sentences, I believe. Um, but this really is is broken down in a couple different buckets. One um, is really to um, make sure that public schools are establishing certain procedures with regard to parent requests for information. Uh, and, and in that instance, it allows um, parents to get information based upon a schedule because what we heard from constituents across the state are they would ask for information and some school districts either never would provide it or three months would go by. And so this really kind of establishes that particular process. Um, The the second bucket really was triggered um, essentially where they wanted to have a right of access to to student information. And so um, this establishes another process by which they can follow that path as well. So those are kind of the the big buckets. Uh, There is a paragraph here that deals with instruction for, um, I believe it's K-4. through
0: I have that, it's on my list. You wanna jump right to that? Sure. All right, let's get to it. I need to flip to that page of the bill. The audience will be treated to the sound of us flipping through this 13-page bill.
1: So the, um, the, the part that I think has received the most attention is that it says instruction on gender identity, sexual activity, or sexuality should not be included in the curriculum. Provided in grades, kindergarten through fourth grade, and then it kind of goes on to explain, you know, what curriculum is and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and so when a lot of folks read this, they think it says something or they use, you know. Uh, they compare
0: it to the don't say gay bill in Florida.
1: Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and what this says is, you know, let's break it down. Instruction on gender identity included in the curriculum. Instruction on sexual activity included in the curriculum instruction on sexuality included in the curriculum. Th- those are the things that ended up being, um, you know, prohibited for, you know, kindergarten through fourth grade.
0: So the, the most reasonable, I think, critique I've heard of this is what happens when you teach a book that has, you know, a straight white father, a straight white mother, and, and two kids as part of the English class, um, little little house on the prairie, right? At first gloss, most people would say there's nothing in here about gender identity, sexual activity, or sexuality. It's a pretty milk toast book. Some might go so as far as to say it's a little boring. But take that same story and just have it be, you know, two fathers. That I think some people would object to, saying, "Hey, this is, you know, this is clearly a story about, you know, um, about sexuality, about you know, same sex attraction." And that might not be appropriate under this law. So how do you – where do you draw the line? When does a story become about gender and sexuality? And why is a story that features heteronormative characters not about gender and sexuality?
1: Well, there are two-part – it's probably a two-part, maybe even a three-part answer. Sure, by all means. One, are they they using the book to instruct on gender identity? Are they using the book to instruct on sexual activity? Or are they using the book – to instruct um, on sexuality as part of the curriculum. Um, When it comes to uh, the curriculum, books, supplementary materials, and those kinds of things, that's all decided by local boards. I mean, the the statutes are pretty clear um, that that is gonna be interpreted at the local board level. And so a a lot of folks have said, well, you know, what does that mean? And so um, I actually found a book on on a uh, professor, that used to teach um, at ECU and now um, teaches at uh, UNCW and says, and and wrote a book um, on how to essentially infuse these things into English language arts for kindergartners, first, second, third, fourth graders. Um, You know, it goes on to say, uh, you know, after a decade of teaching, we believe elementary English language arts can be, can include a lot of different topics. And then not only just include the topics, but instruct students on those particular topics. And then take the, um, you know, take those um, particular books, you know, an example that they give in this book on, on how to create a lesson plan to kind of teach about gender identity and teach about sexuality. In this instance, I believe it was third graders. Um, it was exploring the developing relationship. But it's, it's a book from you know, uh, historical fiction about a, a young black and white girl that were told by their mothers they couldn't cross the fence, that divided their properties. And it was really based on race. Um, and that's kind of what the book was about because historically um, that was going on at that particular time. And so um, the this book, uh, an education professor, really goes on to talk about how you can queer the text, and how you can get students to ask questions about gender identity, and how to get students to ask questions about sexuality. Um, And and so it's really building in the curriculum instruction on these topics, as opposed to, you know, the book just being a historical fiction book. So I I think that's the distinction. At the end of the day, the materials are going to be determined by, by the local boards. And that's where folks will have the opportunity closer to home to kind of talk about these very specific issues. As you know, um, on a state level, it's more broader policy. And then uh, when it comes to education and a lot of other things, it comes down to local implementation.
0: Okay, I take your point. I just wanna make sure our listeners understand here. So if we had a text, say uh, a book or a movie or a TV series, um, like Little House in the Prairie, except it's Michael Landon and his husband, and that's being taught or shown to the class, so that a teacher can lead a conversation about same-sex attraction, uh, the queer community, gay marriage, anything like that. That would run afoul of the law for these younger students. But if it just happens to have, you know, a gay couple in it, but it is about, you know, a slice of time about teaching about the history of, say, you know, frontier life in the United States and what that was like, and the teacher is not leading a conversation about these verboten topics then just having the queer characters in it doesn't run afoul of the law.
1: Yeah, instruction on these, these categories in the curriculum. You know, At the end, the students, um, because they were really young, didn't pick up on the whole gender identity discussion. And the author of the book said as she turned the page of the book to continue reading, she resigned herself to finding another book that might help the class more deeply explore topics of gender and sexuality. I mean, this is kindergarten. I mean, excuse me, this is elementary school, and I think this was a third-grade class. Those are the kinds of things, because one of the questions I always got, well, is this really happening? You know, does this happen? You know, this is an education professor training, you know, teachers in K-5 language arts with a whole book on the topic.
0: Reading the Rainbow is
1: the book. Reading the Rainbow, LGBTQ Inclusive Literacy Instruction in the Elementary Classroom, and and a lot of folks will say, well, you know, they're going to read about it, hear about it, talk about it. Um, they're going to see it everywhere. We're on, we have the Internet. But, you know, some of these foundational discussions with um, young kids, parents, I think, are the ones that are in the best place to determine what's developmentally appropriate for the kindergartner, the first grader, second grader, um, and rather than it being, you know, infused into English language arts, where we are really trying to educate children, as everybody knows, um, Reading proficiency scores in third grade are abysmal. Um, they're getting much better since the institution or implementation of the science of reading um, across our schools and our state. But you know, these are the types of things that that brought rise to to the parents' bill of rights, and, and mostly from constituents.
0: One thing I d- I do want to note is that this law does not prohibit students from asking questions. So all. if the point of the curriculum is, as I was saying. To illustrate a, a historical period, um, and there is a character, maybe an unmarried woman, and a kid says, "You know, why does this character, why does she not like men?" You know, the teacher then, at the local level, has probably has to find you know some age appropriate response to that, but but no one is is getting you know put up against the wall for that.
1: You know, and one of the examples that was asked when we were debating the bill, you know, you've got a kindergarten class, make a family tree. Um, two moms, two dads, um, students ask questions. I mean, it specifically even says, you know, any, you know, certainly don't want to stop, you know, responses to student-initiated questions. So I think that a lot of what has been talked about in this bill um, is not accurate, and um you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the the local materials and you know supplements to learning um, that teachers have is really all approved kind of on the local level. So folks will be able to have a direct input uh, on those things.
0: So the last question I want to ask about this, and I, I won't use a straw man. This is actually a question I have about this. Is I've I've heard from plenty of people who feel like, you know, first, second, third grade that is too young to get into, you know a more graphic, detailed conversation about the nuts and bolts of sexuality and gender identity. Is, is that too young of an age to talk about race? Is that too young of an age to talk about ethnic or, or religious identities? Is that just too young to talk about that kind of identity politics in general? Or is there something specific about gender and sexuality that's more inappropriate for younger students than, say, some of those other categories?
1: I think that um, the fact that it was being included in, in English language arts curriculum um, in a variety of different school systems, not all school systems, obviously, and, and uh, I would hope not even in a majority of school systems. But since this was, um, you know, that's what the bill is really, you know, made to address and it's really um, not to really deal with any of those other issues. I mean, we. You know, I I gave an example of a book that's read that really talks about, you know, race with the, you know, historical fiction book. And I think that that was an appropriate discussion and book. Um, I'm one of 170 in the General Assembly and a lot of one of 10 plus million people in the state. That's my opinion. Um, But that's not what the bill was about. And that's why this bill came forward. All
0: right. I want to sort of back up earlier on in this bill to some of the other points. This is in the earlier bucket, I think. Um, and, and part of this bill is about, you know, as you said, giving parents some reasonable expectations for how their school district will give them answers to questions they're legally entitled to have answers to. And Lord knows over the last eight or so years, I've covered the New Hanover County School District. Um, and many of the people who have come to me have been liberal uh, education advocates who have had complaints that I feel like are answered by this bill. So I want to point out that. I've covered the stories where this this bill would have come in handy for some people. One of the questions I have is about the logistics of the parental challenge process that's set up here. This is a procedure that is set up by state law that gives basically two options, right? A parent can notify the State Board of Education of their concern, uh, and they sort of basically set up a hearing, or they can take civil action. Is that about right?
1: Yes, there's not a hearing before the board, but they establish rules and procedures and—
0: So I guess my two questions about that first procedure is um, So the State Board uh, appoints a qualified hearing officer. Um, You know, you've got to be a bar licensed attorney. And the public school has to pay the cost of that hearing officer. One of the concerns I've heard about this is that it sort of acts like an unfunded mandate. Um, Was that a concern you guys thought about?
1: Uh, I think, and I need to double check, I think this same process is in place for other types of remedies. Um, that come with certain disputes um, within school systems. I, I would have to double-check, though. I believe it's in with regard to services being provided to special-needs students, but I would have to double-check.
0: And the other concern I've heard is, you know, we have watched people abuse other state laws um, to essentially attack local uh, you know, school districts. Uh, public records requests are probably the number one. And as a journalist, I feel a little odd about saying this because I'm, I'm pretty— passionate about people's right to request public documents. But I've certainly seen people, um, irrespective of political background, just abuse the hell out of the system and try to almost like reverse paperboard the school district by asking for thousands and thousands of pages of documents. Is there any concern that this process is vulnerable to abuse by bad actors?
1: Um, I mean, any process is gonna be vulnerable. You know, people will try and take advantage of rules and laws all the time. You know, the state board has the ability to establish rules. We ask them to establish some emergency rules. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is give parents and students the opportunity to be heard on particular issues and not be hamstrung from having them heard because they just don't have enough money. Um, You know, I think at the end of the day, the students' interests are are paramount. This is the way that um, it was kind of set out so that you could pursue your rights and not, you know, have the risk of of hiring a lawyer because you couldn't afford one or not be able to pursue your rights because you just didn't have enough money.
0: The last sort of specific detail I I want to talk about, um, and this is something that we had talked about off mics, is that there appears to be something of of an off-ramp here, at least a little bit. Um, And this is on page seven. This is under notification of student physical and mental health. So this is one that has been... um, I think you would probably say much hay has been made about this. But this, there's a lot in here, but I think the thing people have really zeroed in on is if a, if a student were to change their pronouns, um, this mandates that the parents have to be notified. So uh, I'm curious, how did this come to the state level?
1: Um, so let me just take, uh, clarify. Sure. I wasn't didn't do a great job explaining my two buckets earlier. One bucket is for um, most information as far as a process, and then the other bucket is related to a student's physical and mental health and information regarding it. And this is kind of in that bucket that that we're talking about right now. Um, I mean, this was a constituent-led request that came up. That's really how it had percolated to the state level. It was, I don't think a lot of folks at first thought that it was an issue that was going on in in a number of different places. As time went on and through the the legislative process, it was discovered that it was going on in a lot of different places, and so um, I think myself and others in the legislature feel that if a child wants to change their name or their pronouns, um, that parents should be notified. Uh, You know, a lot of people, you know, some people have said, you know, why does a parent need to be notified? And I actually had a parent come to me and. uh, the parent went to an assembly where the student was in the program, and that was the first time that she found out that her daughter had a different name. And, you know, those kinds of things are, you know, it, the, as a parent is just, number one, unacceptable um, to find out that way. And number two, if, if your child has um, an issue with their gender identity, their, their, their name, their pronoun, Parents are, are the ones that, you know, or guardians, um, as provided in the bill, you know, really are, in my opinion, the ones, you know, best able to help that child on, you know, either through that or um, provide them an avenue to get help some way if they need help.
0: So I, th- I think what this what this bill is addressing is, you know, kids who are experiencing their gender in a way that they're they're no longer sure that their sex at birth is who they are as a person. I've personally seen some situations where perfectly good relationship between the kids and the parents. But the issue is that it's a tough thing to, to bring to your parents. It's a very sensitive, very intimate conversation to have with your folks. But any any conversation about what you wanna be, who you think you are with your parents, it's, it's tough. And so the situation that has been presented to me and that I've seen in some cases is where um, the child wants a little grace and a little time Sure. between when they could maybe tell uh, you know, a school counselor or a trusted teacher who they don't probably have the same fear of absolute judgment as they do with your parents. Your parents' opinion, that's why dads say, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed, because that'll level you. So was there any consideration or is there any consideration in this law of a time frame of like, can you give the kid a week?
1: And so um, we, we talked about very specific examples when we were debating the bill. Um, you go to a a teacher or a counselor and you say I want to change my name or change my pronoun and then the teacher or counselor would respond well you know we have to notify your parents before we can do that Um, you know that interaction does not require uh, a teacher or counselor to call the parents and so the the student has the ability to to make that decision um, in speaking with a counselor um, as to whether they want to go ahead and, and do that or not. If um, the counselor says that and then the student says, well, you know, I'll, I'll get kicked out of the house or my parents will beat me, you know, the, there are provisions in the statute that, you know, provide for, for those things.
0: That, and that's the off-ramp I was, I was talking about. So the language I think that I was talking about, and I, I think this is what you're referring to, is when a reasonably prudent person who would believe that disclosure would result in the child becoming an abused juvenile or neglected juvenile as defined by state law. So, and and this is the, I would say nightmare scenario that you would hope would never exist. But we've seen there there you know, documented news stories where this does happen, where you have a child who comes out as queer or comes out as transgender and the parents react badly or worse violently. And, in any case, that leads to the child taking their own life or committing other acts of self-harm. That is the absolute worst thing. And I've seen Republican legislators around the state here in North Carolina accused of transphobia or contributing to grievous harm against you know transgender kids because of uh, because of this law because they frame it as you know forcibly outing children to parents who are going to be violently non-receptive or you know terribly non-receptive. Um, so can you talk a little bit about this this clause and h- how, how would that work in a, in a school situation?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think – let me first – because we talked about sure, yeah. Chapter 7B. And, and so what does that mean? What does abuse or neglect mean? And because a lot of people think it's something different than maybe what it is. You know, um, abuse is creating or allowing to be created serious emotional damage to a juvenile um, – you know, it can be evidenced by severe anxiety, depression, withdrawal, aggressive behavior toward himself or others. And that's in uh, Chapter 7b uh, where you talked about the reasonably prudent person. Uh, a neglected juvenile, neglect, that's also one of the off-ramps you mentioned, doesn't provide for proper care, supervision, or discipline, has abandoned the juvenile. You hear a, a student say, well, my parents are going to kick me out. Um, you know, th- those are the kinds of um, – things that constitute abuse or neglect creates or allows to create a living environment that's injurious to the juvenile's welfare. And so those are the, the instances in which the, the school does not have to notify the parent. You know, the question is, is that, you know, you know we can't put everything in a bill. But if a, if a counselor or a teacher feels like a parent is going to abuse or neglect a child, um, by change their name or pronoun and yet they're going to allow them to change their name or pronoun so that the whole school knows and every teacher knows and if they're in a uh, a play or or something you know open to the general public and their name's going to be in a pronoun in a program i think that the teacher um, or counselor i think there's more than likely a duty there so that the child would be protected
0: so in that situation you know say you know a, a young student uh, named John wants to be Jane. Um, we, we we would now have counselors and teachers referring to the student as Jane. They could use uh, use the women's restroom. Um, obviously, the hope would be for some reconciliation. That's not in this. That's not, no. That's not in the bill. <laughs> but like, if, if a local district made this decision, because a counselor thought, you know, and and let's sort of steel man the argument where there was, you know, previous police involvement, not just anecdotal, but like there's clear documented evidence that these parents um, have a nasty violence streak and there's a lot of credence in this kid's uh, allegations and concerns. This The district says, you know, based on our prudent concerns about this, we are going to change the student's pronouns. We're going to let them use their restroom of choice. Obviously, our long-term goal is reconciliation with the family and, and understanding. But for now, we I, can go ahead and do this.
1: I would say that they don't have to notify the parents. I mean, that, that's the crux of it. Again, if you're a reasonably prudent person and you're going to allow the student to change their name and pronoun to the rest of the world but not their parents, and you think if their parents find out that they're going to react violently to the child, I think that's a decision that the locals are going to have to to make um, to accommodate the child and put the child in direct and immediate jeopardy, and they know the child will be in direct immediate jeopardy. Um, you know that's, that's something they're going to have to work through on the local level with each individual instance.
0: Yeah. Um you know, if everyone in school knows that the chances of the parents overhearing it at the grocery store are, are increased, I think the counter argument would be that that child's already – if that situation is that bad, that child's in danger. Um,
1: then if a child is in danger, I mean, abuse or neglect, I think it um, – I don't have the laws in front of me, but I think that the a, – um, a school, a teacher it has got a responsibility to report that. You know, again, but, you know, the idea here is, you know, so many people say we're going to hurt children here. The idea here is really to protect kids um, and to uh, allow, you know, we have those instances that you're talking about, but there's the other instances where parents, if they knew what their son or daughter were going through, they would want the ability to help them and counsel them and be supportive. And it, and it eliminates that um, and, and it puts a divide between those parents and that student it causes those students' teachers to lie to parents about the name and pronoun. It causes the other students in the school to lie uh, about the name and pronoun that 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 child is moving forward with. So, you know, I think it's equally harmful to take away what in many instances will be the main support system for a student that is going through um, a gender identity issue.
0: All right. Totally different question. Um, And this is open because I I don't – I'm not sure I actually understand how the law works here. But – There is later on in section two, there's a charter school exemption. This was existing language, I think, that talks about charter schools exemptions from some of the other regulations that the state has. Uh, One of the things that people sometimes find attractive about charter schools is that they have a bit more flexibility. So for these things that we've been talking about, do these apply to charter schools?
1: Uh, The part that you're talking about, really, whenever we talk about um, a board of education, it's really more toward an LEA. So it doesn't take a charter school issue that is appealed to an LEA. It doesn't have to be appealed to a board of education. It goes to whatever their governing board is, or the
0: most the the, the person with the most responsibility right, at that right. unit. But uh, a charter school, for example, is teaching say material that crosses that line is. You know, it's in the curriculum to teach something about gender identity in third grade. Does that fall under the pro, under the auspices of this law? So
1: all public school units, you, you'll see it in a variety of different places, um, even in the remedies section. Public school unit equals charter schools and traditional LEAs that you think of. I think it includes two other schools that are specialty schools as Regional well. schools and to double check the the law, but uh, I think it it covers some other schools that are covered under public school units.
0: Gotcha. All right. Um, And that may be confusing for some of our listeners because I know um, some charter schools in our region have challenged their status as being um, public school units, uh, most notably the uh, classical uh, charter school in Leland, which tried to get out from under that so they could have a, um, a gendered dress code. But last I checked from the courts, they ruled that they are still a public school.
1: All charter schools are public school units under the defined term, and so are all district or LEAs. That is um, on
0: the first page of this bill. <laughs> so, Okay, we need to take another quick break. You've been listening to our conversation with State Senator Michael Lee, and when we come back, we'll tie up some loose ends and hear about some other educational issues. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for staying with us. We return now to our conversation with Republican State Senator Michael Lee. I'm curious if there are misconceptions or you know, things that you have heard that you would like to talk about.
1: Yeah, I mean, with opportunity scholarships, um, folks talk about how it's going to defund um, the traditional public school system. You know, right now, under the, under the current – statute that was recently passed, so even after the expansion in 26, 27, 25, 26, it actually starts 24, 25, but to take it all the way out for three years, you know, you're still looking at the the entire budgeted amount being 2.7 percent of the entire education budget for opportunity scholarships. When you look at just the K-12 portion, you're looking at 4 percent or just under 4 percent on what's projected. So the concept that it will defund um, traditional public education is just just not accurate. Um, and to the extent that there are funding differences when a child moves out of a traditional public school and they go to a private school, again, because the, the delta or the difference between what was being paid to the, um, by the state for them to attend the traditional public school versus the um, opportunity scholarship is going to be reinvested into a reinvestment fund. The average scholarship um, right now is about $5,600 per student on average. Uh, as through expansion, it goes down to $5,300. So you're looking at um, that difference even being created um, a little larger so that we can establish a little bit bigger of a, of a reinvestment fund. The other thing folks um, have a misconception on is how many kids actually go to private school. You know, right now we have about 1.4 million students in you know, what I would consider traditional public schools. Charter schools now, I think, are around 130,000. Private schools are up to 115,000. Homeschool is now 160,000. So private schools are of, the th- of all the options, traditional, uh, public charter, private, and homeschool. Private schools are really the smallest right now. The big uptick we've seen recently in, in uh, private schools and homeschools really kind of relate to COVID and the COVID shutdown. Um, and you've seen some fluctuation uh, some parents put their kids into private school so they could have in-person instruction. I know two school teachers that put their kids into private school and just did what they had to do to make it work so their child could get in-person instruction.
0: I suppose the the complaint I hear most often is less about numbers and more about what is viewed as a symbolic attack on public education that by passing this legislation during a very busy legislative calendar is sort of, signaling that public schools should basically have to sing for their supper or f- duke it out in the market with private schools and charter schools in, in a way that feels less than supportive of public schools.
1: And, and, and what we're really focused, well, we continue to increase funding. We continue, continue to try and find creative programs. We continue to try and do things like the science of learning to find out where things are going wrong and how to fix them, especially with third-grade uh, reading proficiency. But at the end of the day, we're really focused on kids and students, and you know, that student that is relegated to a zip code that needs an opportunity to move out. You know, providing the means to help them get there. It, it's not going to be the end all be all, but at the end of the day, we're really focused on, on kids and families. I hear folks talk all about schools, private schools, charter schools, public schools. I'm usually more focused on students. That's kind of the the direction that I've taken, and I think it's the direction a lot of folks have taken. In Raleigh, Democrats and Republicans.
0: If this goes badly for public schools, hypothetically, if you know the, the increased incentives to explore charter schools, to explore private schools, does end up hurting public schools, what are some of the options to shore them up?
1: Well, I can't speculate on what's going to happen. We, we don't think that's going to happen, although sometimes there are unintended consequences, which is why we are creating this public school reinvestment fund. Um, and that will be used to provide targeted investments to those areas that need it the most. Right now in North Carolina, we've um, you know f- we have had just declining proficiency um, for a very long time. Things aren't getting better, and so as we kind of go through this transition and we're looking at how we can make all those things better, we're, we're keeping kind of everything in mind as we move forward. But none of the f- I don't believe and. Most of the folks that I've talked to, both inside education and outside education, don't think that this is going to harm traditional public schools in, in any way.
0: I, I will say you know, I, I hear from people all across the political spectrum deep, deep concerns about student performance, student attendance, student discipline. And so I, I take your point that that is an important thing to look at. Do you feel like some of the culture war issues got in the way of getting to that first?
1: I don't think so because that's what we're really focused on really all the time. Um, that's where you know I spend most of my time, to be honest with you. I represent our district, but education is really where I'm focused. And, and a lot of that focus never makes <laughs> the headlines. It never makes the news um, because it's a lot of the nuts and bolts of things that we need to accomplish – as a state down to district level, and in some instances down to a school level. And, and what we really need to do is be looking at innovation and, and doing things differently, whether it's uh, you know new programs like Spark NC that I spearheaded over the last four years that, that you see kind of being replicated across the state within traditional public schools, um, giving them the opportunity to provide um, students with um, a much more expanded uh, ability to learn and obtain certifications and credit uh, to graduate from high school. all the way to some things we're looking at now, looking at now with artificial intelligence and, and uh, I was meeting with Saul Khan for an entire day uh, up in Raleigh not too long ago to talk about artificial intelligence and how that works with with um, tutoring and a new program they have called ConMigo where they had access to open AI for a much longer, or excuse me, a CHAT GPT, I think it was four, much longer than, than the general public um, so that they could establish some of these things. Those are the kinds of things that we're working on every single day to really help students be successful.
0: All right, well, State Senator Michael Lee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, I appreciate it. All right, well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to Michael Lee for joining us today, and thanks also to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Mark Breedy. Music for today's show was performed by If These Trees Could Talk, who have new music out for the first time in almost a decade, and Blue Dot Sessions. If you missed part of the program, you can find it at whqr.org or wherever you find your podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of the newsroom.